Hello, I'm Marcus Rilton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. Tony Singh MBE is one of the UK's best loved celebrity chefs. He's renowned for his lively personality and skill in designing quirky and delicious dishes. So it was super to have him pop into the Scots Care podcast for a chat. We spoke about all sorts of things, growing up in Leith in Edinburgh in the 70s and 80s, and how much it's changed, how much it's been gentrified. But as Tony says, better a cappuccino than a hammer attack on a Thursday night. And you can't really argue with that. Tony's dyslexic, so we talked about that, we talked about modern education, and we talked about the fact that his dyslexia has never held him back in the kitchen. He was very honest about his own diet. He says when you spend all night cooking fantastic food for other people, you don't feel like cooking for yourself and what he really looks forward to is a pizza or a kebab. So I'd like to welcome Tony Singh to the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care, the charity helping to break the cycle of poverty some Scots find in London. Hi Tony. Hi Marcus, how are you man? I'm good, thanks for doing this. No problem. Now, you and I are just about the same age, and the other thing we've got in common is that I used to work in Leith, and you were brought up in Leith. Yes. It must have been a pretty different Leith from what it is today. What was Um, it like when you were, like, when we were knocking about and we were 10 years of age? it's, It's different, but same, if you know what I mean. It's still got that amazing sense of community, you know what I mean? And uh, now it's a bit different, it's gentrified, there's great um, uh, incentives going on, there's great clubs, there's all this uh, growing their own food and everything, which is fantastic. But when I was growing up, the community was there, you know what I mean? You had local BBs, scouts, all that kind of stuff. But it was a bit of a rough area, you know what I mean? It was a very working class area, the docks were active, it was completely different. And then in the late 70s, 80s with the drugs and everything, rough reputation. But I think the thing that's kept a constant through it is, is that sense of community, that sense of you're a Lisa, you're a Lisa, you know what I mean? And persevere, it's always going to be okay. So, yeah, it's a change. I've had a couple of my mates, uh, Gurnans, you know, it's a bit gentrified, this and other. There's so many coffee shops and tattooed folk and beardy weirdies and all that. I said, what would you <laughs> What do you want? A cappuccino or a hammer attack on a Thursday night, eh? So it's a cappuccino that wins all the time. So I think it's fantastic. It's great, and it just shows what community spirit does, and I think Leith's got buckets full of it. I'm really glad you said that, because I used to, I used to work at... It was a radio station called Scott FM, and you probably remember it, and it was on Leith Docks, and this was in 96, and there was nothing there, nothing at all. The docks were active, but apart from that, it was a bomb site and... You couldn't get a coffee. A, a wee man used to come round with a sandwich, uh, sandwich, in in the back of his car. Uh, and there used to be a caravan at the entrance to the docks, where yeah. I would buy stovies. Uh, and the caravan's still there. 
is it? Yeah, yeah. Down at what you call it, um, coming off of uh, Northgate Junction Street, we just carry on straight down where the casino was built. They sell a caravan there selling uh, morning rolls and everything. See, that that kind of gladdens my heart, Tony, because when I was thinking about you and thinking about Leith, and I've not been there for 25 years, I was thinking, do I have rose-coloured specks? But it's it's nice that you've said it still retains that community. Oh, no, totally. I think that's why what's there, the, 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 the young team there now is, it's got a great family, it's got a great... Everybody wants to see somebody for Leith do well. You know what I mean? And so I think that's what, quite... What was quite, your family like then? What did you... Were you from a big family in Leith? Uh, no, there were bigger. There were bigger families that were there. I had. I've got um, two brothers and one sister, so there was only six sisters. And did your mum and dad cook? Is that where? It, is that where it came from for you? Definitely. I think I was very lucky, and I think most of my friends at that time, uh, it was that traditional setup where the the father went out to work and the mother cooked and stayed at home or worked and still cooked or the granddad. So we had still had that generation of everybody having home-cooked meals. And I think that's when it's a bit of a shame now. I think both parents have to work, uh, and it's hard for them to cook. You know, that time pressure to help your kids study, cook, work, everything is really hard. So I was very, very fortunate to have always home-cooked fresh food. Do you think... It's just that when when I say to, I'm Scottish to anyone in London or we live just outside London now, people always go, oh, deep fried Mars bars. But do you think that Scottish food gets a bit of a, it is the butt of too many jokes, isn't it? Well, we never take ourselves seriously, right, which is one thing. But the, the whole deep fried Mars bar, it's just such a urban thing, right? So uh, this was probably 1999 when the Royal Yacht uh, was commissioned, decommissioned and then commissioned as a um, visitor centre. So I was the first civilian chef on it and we had uh, we were doing a press PR launch and there was a whole load of uh, journals up from London stand, you know what I mean? So they were up and they were mumbling, oh, if we could get deep fried Mars bars. And uh, we had just made some champagne truffles, so I deep froze them. Uh, by the end of the night, we dipped them in a nice, really light tempura bar, fried them, salted caramel, and I said, oh, uh, crock on the chocolate with uh, cell caramel. And I, Oh, wow. I said, oh, just like a chopped up Mars bar. You know what I mean? It depends how you package it, how you see it. Yes. I mean, there's nothing wrong with deep fried chocolate. You know what I mean? But having a, a whole Mars bar with a ketchup on it, I don't think it's anybody's idea of good food. But it's a thing. You know what I mean? It's like a, a crystal pizza, a deep fried pizza. And in your youth, yeah, you could work it off. But I think what we have to remember, Scottish produce is championed and lauded all over the world. Yeah, and it's, I don't think, well, it's changing now that we are appreciating what we produce, what our farmers, what our fishermen go and get, and it's amazing. So I think that's changing slowly. You'll still get people talking about deep fried Mars bar. That's fine, as long as they remember something, you know what I mean? Yeah. We don't all sit there and drink iron brew, eat tons tea cakes, you know what I mean? So... Which are all great, by the way. Uh, whether it's a tea cake or a caramel log or a snowball, I like it all. Yeah. Aye. No, it's brilliant. We've got a sweet tooth. What can I say? Yeah, I do. I want to come on to that. But do you know what I wanted to ask you? Uh, can you explain your heritage to me? Because you're, I th- I read about this and I just what I thought, oh, I'll, I'll clarify this with you. Are you fourth generation Scottish then? How does that work? So my great granddad came over and he was in Edinburgh 
in the 40s and 50s on my dad's side and my granddad on my mum's side, he was in Glasgow uh, during the Second World War. He was in the home garden and everything. So would that be third generation and the kids are fourth? Is that right? Is that where it is? Your kids are fourth generation. Would that make you... so, because if your great-granddad's first, yeah. then your granddad and then your parents, so that would be third. Yeah, you'd be third. Do you, yeah. do you know much about why he came over? Have you ever done that, looked into your family, family well, history? There was something ridiculous called the partition in 1947 when uh, Britain left India, when we gained independence. When India gained independence, the Radcliffe line, some boy in uh, Whitehall called Radcliffe drew a line through north of the northeast of India. And he basically halved or made Punjab into Pakistan. So, oh, and it was on religious divides. So you had a migration of Sikhs, Hindus moving from Punjab to India, and you had lots of Muslims moving from India to uh, Pakistan. So uh, they were refugees. They were fleeing uh, bloodshed, basically. So the stories that you hear um, of the horrendous butchering of both sides just because of sectarian um, divides was horrendous. So they were left everything in Punjab. From there, they were uh, refugees to Amritsar, Amritsar, Delhi, Delhi to the UK and up to Scotland. Can you imagine, you and I take our weather for granted, but can you imagine the culture shock when your uh, great-granddad arrived in the docks or something like that and thought, what the just, heck is this? Just can't you, you can't imagine anything, never mind the, the, the weather, the, the, the fact that they've left their friends, their family, their livelihoods, everything. They had to flee for their lives. Just can't he understand it. And you think we'd learn. And you see now it's still happening all over the world. It's terrible. You know what I mean? It's horrendous. People don't want to move if they, if they can't help it. It's, it's always an extreme that makes them want to uproot and risk their lives to move. And he obviously thrived and, uh, you know, had kids and went on and, you know, became part of the Leith community, which was great, which you grew up in. Uh-huh. And then I was reading about the fact that, and I hadn't seen this for years, but it said that you did a YTS. And I, I thought that will be well, lost on so many people, but that was such a big thing when I was a kid. Well, it was, it was the only way it was in the 80s. It was high unemployment everything. I think it was a great thing because apprenticeships were got axed. Uh, I think they're coming back now. I think this is one of the things that whatever government gets in there, they need to give kids a chance to try their hands at skills we would never never think of. But I always wanted to cook. So I was white yes with Scottish Newcastle breweries. And I thought pub food was the best thing in the world because it was all freshly made and the, the cook that I worked with, she was fantastic. And then I went to college for the first like one day a week. And it was the lectures at Telford College that opened my eyes to the world of whole cuisine, French gastronomy, and it was brilliant. And then it was like no holding me back. I loved it. But were you able to go into that with a kind of you know, a kind of background of what your mum had taught you at home. Was that an advantage to you? Uh, well, no, because which, back then it was a case of I was made, I, I made a conscious decision, I'm, I'm cooking French food. And uh, when I went for jobs after my IT, it's like, son, we did Indian food here, eh? I said, not there. And it was, when you were talking about whites in kitchens, never mind the chef's whites, it was very white kitchens, especially up in Scotland. I think I was... Oh, how old would I have been? 20, 20, 
two when I've seen my first other Asian chef and he'd come up for down south, he was sous chef up at, um, in the Balmoral and he was just doing a stage and that was it. You know what I mean? So it was very different. Was it different in that there was just a lack of anybody apart from white faces or was there, was there racism within the kitchens? There was racism all over the place, but I think it was a case of when you got in a kitchen, you cracked on, the chef wouldn't stand for anything. If you had a good chef that was nasty, you know what I mean? Yeah. There was what would be called un-PC jokes and everything like that, but you gave as good as you got. Homeless Scots in London are overrepresented in the homeless population. We are on hand to support them into safe and secure accommodation through financial grants, mental health support, addiction support and referrals. Our outreach workers work with our clients to find the best strategy back to a home and continue to be there as they adjust to life away from the streets. When you spoke about the YTS and rather than going on to like, I don't know, like a, I think about this, I'm asking this because my son yeah. is struggling at the moment and he they're looking at him and saying he they think he's partially dyslexic and uh -huh. i read that you were dyslexic as well and i wondered if going into the kitchen helped you in a way because it was a much more vocational skill than having to struggle on further at school oh totally i think now where people have um different ways of learning i'm a very visual learner so videos of practical learning is amazing. And I think because all my three kids are dyslexic as well, uh, but they've cracked on well, you know, saying that we've had to, we had to get um, help for them, uh, we had to change school for one of them. And I think it's better now that the, the teachers are understanding what it is and there's so many different ways to engage children that learn differently. Neurodiversity, you know what I mean? But I think... The whole thing when you speak to other people that are dyslexic, they're very creative in other ways. And I think for me, cooking, it never hindered me at all. You know what I mean, my recipes, my handwriting is terrible. I should have been a doctor. You should see it. it's like a spider crawled to an inkwell. Um, so I could understand my recipes and that, and it didn't really matter. But the practical side of it, yeah, because it was hands on, it was brilliant. So it was a field where it didn't hold me back. And you found in the kitchen, there was quite a lot of chefs that weren't that great, they weren't academic, but they were very practical, very craft-based um, people. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if that's where like traditional school education lets us down a bit. You know, my son Noah, who's, he's turning 14, he's choosing his GCSEs down here. And, huh. You know, he's, he's such a good kid. And we've done what you just mentioned, we've swapped schools because we're hoping that we can get him into an environment that kind of, fosters his talent rather than says it's reading and writing or it's the highway. You know, I, I don't think that's the future for him. No, definitely not. But I think every government that goes in, whether it's Westman or Scottish, they all bang on about this education. And I think they always miss a point. Our education system still based on Victorian system. It's just in the holidays and everything. You look at other other countries where they go in a bit earlier, they may have an extra day, but the short, you know what I mean? It's just done differently. And you can just take the best from other systems and start again, you know what I mean? There's no need to stick to what we're doing, especially if it's not helping people fulfill their potential. Mm. Do, you, do you have a good work ethic? Because any, any chefs I have met are the hardest working people I've ever met in my life. 
Well, this is the thing. It's uh, if you don't like the industry, it's one of the worst jobs in the world because you're grafting all the time. And if you like the industry you're in, you never think you're working because you're enjoying it so much. But now, I think in the the bad old days, split shifts, fourteen hours a day, it was a norm. And now there has to be a happy balance because you're making fresh food. It takes a lot of time. Mm. Right, so if unless if you're buying things and more prepared, it costs more, so the prices have to be more, right? And and you've not got that finesse and taste of a home cooked or homemade product. So if you've got your own place where you're making stuff from scratch, you know you're going to be doing more than eight hours a day. You have to if you're making things from scratch. And is it more difficult now because there are, in a good way, there's so many more types of food that you have to cater for you know plant-based food gluten-free food nut-free food does that i presume that kind of impacts your margins and means more time in the kitchen well this is a a bit of a cause of probably a, a bit of a controversy here is the fact is with the pressures of staffing electricity ingredients and everything going into a small restaurant that is not vegan or plant-based or um, gluten-free or trace-free because they're in a small environment and then expect them to have a menu for you. And if you bring five guests of six years and one years has got an intolerance, what you'll find now is if that person is not comfortable there, everybody leaves, right? So in that case, you need to make sure the phone before phone beforehand, let them know what it is because you're asking a small independent restaurant to carry all this extra food. Right. And the, the, the whole philosophy and idealism of veganism, I totally get. It. Right. So if you're a vegan, you need to understand as well that if you're asking people to carry plant-based menus, that's a recipe, normally four or six. But if you've only got one person coming in that week, yeah, it, it's it's a waste of food. You know yeah, what I mean? I get what you mean. Yeah, because it's more oh, difficult it, to sit there and waste. Yeah, sit there or, or if it's incorporated, that's very good. But if you're not that kind of restaurant, if you want to be a meat-based restaurant, it's a meat-based restaurant. Yeah. We've got we've got a plant-based, we've got street food brand and everything. I love vegan food. I love vegetarian food. I love, I love all kinds of food. But I have to be very clear when I'm putting out the street food thing, this is what we do. But it's up to us on how it could be 99.9% all vegan, but we put a meat dish on. And that shouldn't put vegans off because you're going to a place where you trust the chef, nothing will be cross-contaminated or anything, so you need to go in that. And if you do go into a restaurant and you do carry that stuff, you're giving them that trust as well. So the bigger the restaurants, yes, there's. I think they've got more scope to carry more different types of uh, free from or different types of cuisine. But if you're going to a, a specific type of cuisine, and then expect them to cater for you. I think it's quite difficult for them to justify that now. And for you to get a fantastic product, because I think it depends where you are as well. If you're in London or if just say you're up in Highland and you go to a wee cafe, you know what I mean? Yeah. How many people are going to go in and ask for that kind of thing? But you're asking them to carry that food. Is your street food stuff all vegetarian and vegan? Well, no, it depends. So Rags Chat's all plant-based, yeah. right? If you say vegan, it scares people away. Yeah, yeah. Right? And this is the thing. It's a rod for their own back. And I love plant-based food. I love vegetables. I love 
I love dairy as well. You know what I mean? It's that whole kind of thing. But if you're going to be plant-based, it's all plant-based. But yeah, radish track's all plant-based. So you've seen a conversion towards more plant-based food. And I wonder whether it's because they're coming to you because, as you said, they will trust you as a chef. Well, I think lots of more people are trying it because there's an amazing variety of ingredients out there now. You know what I mean? And there's chefs are skilled. And the thing with vegetables, we've we've always eaten lots of it. If you look at Indian cuisine, it's vegetarian food is a byword for back in the day, what would you have? You'd go for a, a vegetarian Indian, you know what I mean? But traditionally, unless which got it's always lots of ghee used and everything like that, unless you're in the South, there's more coconut milk. So it wouldn't be vegan, but it's vegetarian. But you can easily tweak that to make it vegan. So what I'm seeing is more people are trying to be more considerate to themselves, the planet, everything. So we're seeing a shift there. The Soul Tired Donor Club is our monthly giving club. Could you spare a monthly donation of any amount to help homeless and vulnerable Scots? Visit our website to give monthly and join the Soul Tired Donor Club. It couldn't be easier and it will make a difference to those struggling in London. Do you treat yourself well? I, I had a mate years ago when I was in Edinburgh and he was a chef and he used to come into the radio station sometimes and he, he would do little bits on why not cook this, why not cook that. And then he would go home and he would eat cold beans out of a tin with a spoon because he just couldn't be bothered cooking for himself. And I thought he, he cooked for me, he cooked for other people and it was fantastic. And he was the one who didn't enjoy his own ability. No, no, I've never been that bad at at the end of the night, yeah, you're normally had enough of looking at food, but you, a chef's diet is probably the worst because you finish late, you need something, and it's normally a chippy, a kebab, pizza, whatever it is. <laughs> or now, but there's there's more fast food places staying open. Like you go for ramen and things like that. You know what I mean? There's healthier option. A kebab, the salad and a kebab, a pot of bread and everything, it's quite healthy. You know what I mean? When you look at it. Yeah, yeah. It depends what you have, but you just need that hit. And yeah, most chefs don't go home and cook themselves a three-course fantastic meal that they've been knocking out all week. But yeah, it's 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 a uh, the work lifestyle work or work lifestyle balance is getting there. But it's still hard for chefs because we're cooking while everybody else is enjoying themselves. Are you still cooking? Are you still going into the kitchen and doing it, or have you? I don't know, what's a polite way to say it? you're not got too big for that? You're not, you know. Well, that's, that's the reason I cook is because I cook and I love cooking. I think it's very uh, interesting and different. The one of the things that sticks in my mind, we had this chap that came to Telford College years ago. Uh, no, it wasn't even at the college, it was an article in the hotel and caterer. And this boy was going on about you'd buy it every week religiously. And he was saying, in the future, chefs are going to be a status symbol. We pitched ourselves laughing because we were on £27 a week or whatever it was there. And you're going, I sure, but look at it now. So you get people that come in the industry to see it as a vehicle to be celebrity or book or telly or whatever it is. And uh, this is work like that. You know what I mean? You have to graft. You have to enjoy what you do. And I love cooking. You know what I mean? I love the hospitality part. And I think that's what's missing in general, in the sense of you could have a cheese sandwich with the right company and it could be the best meal you've had in years. Yes. Yeah, I know I know what you mean by that. 
Aye. I used to think that when I used to work away a lot and they would put me up in a hotel, a nice place, and I go and I'd be eating my dinner on my own. Yep. And it was pointless because I was enjoying it on my own and I wasn't able to lean across to my wife and go, oh, taste that, or that's fantastic. So it made it almost pointless. Well, this is the thing. It's all about sharing. You know what I mean? It's one of these things as a, a species we do that not, I don't think any other ones that we share. We like to sit down and show off what we eat and share and talk about it. You know what I mean? It's, Are you it's a big a, social media user? Uh, I'm trying to get into it. I, I have to because of work. Um, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I just wonder because, you know, people go a bit mental about there was a time where if you'd taken a photograph of what you're about to eat, people would think you were bonkers. And now everybody I, does it. Well, this is it. But I always say, uh, eat, then tweet or Twitter or whatever you want to do because it's come out and it's hot and it's ready to go. And the best thing you can show is an empty plate and say, you need to go and try it. You don't sound like you courted the limelight at all, Tony. It kind of feels as if it found you rather than you going out there. What what was that kind of tipping point with somebody? Did somebody say to you, oh, you've got a great look or you've got a great talent? No, which quite so the first time I was on telly was um ITV Chef of the Year for the Millennium 2000. So it was 1999. This is the first professional cooking show ever. I was up against my peers, people that trained me, guys that looked up to proper giants in the industry, and I won. So I went, superb, I'm going to be in the next Jamie Oliver here. And I went, left the job, went to London and everything, and went to an agency, and they said, yeah, that's fantastic, you're great, blah, 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 but you need to take elocution lessons. Oh. So I went, beat it, you know what I mean? I should have done it, and I could have been the next Jamie Oliver. And I would have been talking to you from my private island somewhere, but... <laughs> It was uh, yeah, it was before the white regional accents and everything. But from then, people just kept asking and little bits and pieces. Whatever I get, it's great. It's great fun because yeah. when you're in front of the camera, you just didn't see the teamwork and what goes on behind the camera. You know what I mean? It's like a radio production. The whole team in the station. You know what I mean? It's amazing. But mm. on, you produce something. It's all, all that. I think it's obviously important for you because it's come out here and it's come out of what you were talking in the kitchen. You, you, you're not a sole operator, are you? you? You do like to be part of a team. Definitely, honestly. Um, it's, I would had a, which got old head chef says, look, he sells the sizzle, we cook the sausages. Oh, so yeah. you need somebody at the top, you know what I mean, to get yeah. there, everybody to bring it together. It is teamwork. It is teamwork. I, th I think one of your qualities is that you do come across, like whether we're talking now or you're on the telly for the BBC or you and I were just having a cup of coffee, you mm -hmm. do come across as the same, the same, the same. That is, this is you, you're very authentic. And when, when you were on that BBC programme, A Cook Abroad, and you went to oh. India, and I thought that was, I thought that was fascinating because I, I watched it and I watched it with kind of two hats on. First, yeah. I just enjoyed it. And the other one, I was thinking, I wonder what he feels. Did, did you feel... Because you're Scottish, you were brought up in Edinburgh, and then you went to this place and found your ancestry. Oh, basically, I was so so blessed to do it, and it was so heart wrenching to hear the stories, and then it was so heartwarming to find the family and speak to them. You know what I mean? It was such a roller coaster of emotions, and it was amazing. It was amazing, and that thing of being authentic and genuine is if you leave your mates would cut the legs for you if you try to be anything else. That's true, that, isn't it? I and definitely. When you went 
and you had this amazing experience. Did you feel an affinity with the country? And, and had you been there before? I'd been there once before with my mom and dad, and it was fantastic. Uh, but we were younger then and weren't allowed to do anything. And basically all you've seen is the inside of other people's houses. Uh, <laughs> but this, this being there with a film crew and everything like that, it was just, it was amazing. We got access to places you wouldn't know of. Um, yeah, it was phenomenal. Were you able to take your wife butching at that point or were you on your own? No, I was on my own. Well, well this is it. So we were working, we just opened a place, so I had to fly out. Uh, couldn't you drink on a plane because when I landed, I changed in the toilets at the airport. So when you see me coming out, that's us rolling. Oh, right. And then coming back, jumped on a plane, got back, and I was working the next day. Gosh, so you almost don't get time to really kind of revel in the, the no, celebrity. No, I No, you know what I mean? If I could stay a couple of more days, it would have been phenomenal. Yeah. And you you get your 30th anniversary. So you, you married young, didn't you? Married when I was 22. Wow. Wow. And you got me in twice and got away with it. But no, no, she likes me. I don't know why, but she does. Have you got four kids? Four kids, I. It's because it's I've got I've got three kids. I've got two boys and I've got a, a little girl. She's only four. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found, and I don't know if you found this, that my girl is like a different species from a bo- my boys are like wild <laughs> dogs, like crazy. It's like it's like zombie apocalypse around the house. And my, uh, my girl is just so easy. Uh, uh, well, I, I don't know. My kids are all brown and uh, they're a bit older. My youngest is 18. So it's great having older children and being still relatively young yourself. So excellent designated drivers. They can cook. <laughs> they can make great cocktails. It's awesome. Well, this is it. You kind of, I think that as well, that, Oh, we still do at the kind of like, oh, can I find a babysitter? Whereas yeah. you've kind of you've either got babysitters ready made, or yeah. you just leave them and you got your freedom. Well, I've got freedom and they can pick us up and drop us off at the pub. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Do you still have ambition? And I mean that generally is a still do you have a list somewhere where you think, oh, I'd like to do that or I'd like to do this? I've got a huge list. There's loads of stuff, there's loads, loads to do. It's getting around to do it in a nice in a way that's um, efficient and productive, you know what I mean? I always like to go somewhere and do something. Last year, I went to Seoul. I love my history, so I went to Seoul. Uh, I wanted to try Korean fried chicken in Korea, and I went to see the DMZ. So I went, and it was brilliant. And then we went off to Cambodia, uh, the whole Vietnam War, the Cambodian thing, all... Was something I was very interested in. They went to see films. It was harrowing. It was so, but the people to see what they came through and they're just amazing. And the food was stunning. So, what else have I got to do? I went, to, I went to hit South America. There's a few places in South America I went to do, and then I went to do Antarctica as well. So, Antarctica, I think I'm, I'm trying to plan on how to get out there. If I can go out and be the chef for six months, I would. See, that's, yeah. I like that. I, I seem to be. I've got a few friends who are, are more like me and I've got another couple of friends that go, well, do you know what? We're 50 now. Maybe we should start playing golf. And I, I want to go sod golf. I, I, I don't want to slow down. Yeah, well, you can play golf in Antarctica, take an orange ball with you, you know what I mean? Or you ski down sand dunes in Peru. There's lots of stuff to do. There is. You don't, you don't feel a sense of your own mortality as you get older? I think you always do. There's people, we've got any more funerals and weddings, as they say. Um, but hey, you're worrying about a day you'll never know it's came. 
Tony, that's a brilliant way to end it. Thank you very much. You've been you've been a wonderful guest. Thanks for being on the Scots Gear podcast. No problem, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Speak to you later. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Did you know Scots Care can help second and even third generation Scots break the cycle of deprivation? Key services include financial grants, homelessness support, mental health support, social events for the Scots community and more.